I don't know about anyone else, but I absolutely love Marvel Shang-Chi, and my action has never looked nearly as good in the MCU before. Hello, and welcome to episode 42 of Nerdsplosion. I am your host, John Wintrobe, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Sean Clark. How are you doing today, Sean? Tired. Um, overwhelmed. I don't, don't think I've had a moment to breathe in two weeks, but... But still here, still doing good. Me and Cam Richardson, who you may hear his voice in a minute or two. Uh, we're heading to Las Vegas this weekend for Las Vegas Motor Speedway coverage for NASCAR. Very excited for that. But yeah, let's talk some, uh, talk some film. Yeah, of course, to talk about film with us is Cameron Richardson, the editor-in-chief at The Rich Report. How are you doing today, Cam? Doing well. Always fun to be back on here. I'm only 10 days out from starting the October movie marathon. I cannot wait. Yeah, no, we have a lot of exciting stuff coming forward. I know that we talked about this when the trailer for it came, um, first came out, but Star Wars Visions is launching in two days from the day that we're recording this, and we'll start covering it on the podcast every week, starting next week, um, two episodes a week. That's going to be really awesome. And of course, Cam is welcome to join us for any of those if he wants to. Just a little housekeeping. We know that we didn't do an episode last week. Um, that was because our lives were just so busy between um, the NAU and U of A football game that happened on Saturday and how late all of us were working and doing homework the week before, as well as us not being able to get to all of our topics before our normal recording day last week. We just couldn't do an episode. And that happens. That's not the first time this has happened, but I just wanted to get that out of the way. Um, but without further ado... We, of course, have all seen Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings at this point, and it's currently dominating the box office and is ready to become probably the second, if not the highest grossing movie of the year um, and hope, and be able to beat out Black Widow by the end of the week, which is just super exciting, especially considering that it's the first Asian-led film in the MCU and is doing the what um, the Asian culture, what Black Panther did the African culture with the big blockbuster style. So what we all think of Shang-Chi, I thought it was amazing. Cam, you oh, I, I absolutely adored it. I think in terms of action, it, it, like you said at the start, it's arguably the best. It's not a lot of jump cuts, not close-up shots. You can see everything that's going on, a lot of wider shots for action, so you can see all the stunt doubles going to work and going to work they absolutely did. Just the set pieces were just immaculate throughout. Like, I know there's a lot of CGI, but man, they, everything just, it felt right. There was one, only, only one problem I really had in general. And that was Aquafina's really awful Jeff Gordon joke at the start of the movie. But regardless of that, I, I couldn't have loved this movie anymore. Great score, in, incredible ensemble. And I said, I said to Sean right after the film, I think it was one of my favorite ensembles in any mcu film as well i think everyone just knocked it out of the park really outside of the really awful and cringeworthy nascar joke i really had nothing else to complain about here yeah i had a feeling that you guys wouldn't like the nascar joke oh well, i immediately heard that i could not think of you guys but the cover the action a little bit the action was choreographed by the late andy chang who was of course trained by the comedy action master himself jackie chan so if you've noticed a lot of more slapsticky use 
of the setting or um, or environment within the action set pieces, especially in the bus fight. That's why. And I love it. Um, I remember we mentioned this when we covered the Suicide Squad last month, but I love when comic book movies actually go and start like actually using the environment in their action set pieces. Birds of Prey did this really well, too. And it's awesome to see that in an MCU film. Um, one of the things that I've never I've kind of had issues with in the MCU before is that a lot of the action can feel kind of samey or uh, nothing really like interesting or unique or compelling. Um, like when Winter Soldier first came out, the action felt unique to that. But because we've gotten that style of action so much in the MCU since then, and now feels ingrained and not as exciting as it was when we first saw it. Um, and I think that it's awesome that Shang-Chi was able to have this unique style of action thanks to Andy Chang. And I think it's the first time since Black Panther's one-on-one um, -on -one fights directed by Ryan Coogler that we really got some interesting or unique action set pieces in the MCU. At least that didn't involve CG. I I love this film. Uh, I, the action set pieces were phenomenal. The cho the choreography of the fights was absolutely stellar. There wasn't really there wasn't really a single action sequence that I didn't enjoy. Bes besides maybe the the giant monsters at the very end, that was a little underwhelming compared to the fight right before where it was Shang Chi versus his father. Yeah, but, but we'll get we'll talk about that more in depth in the moment but yeah it was really good yeah uh every fight hand-to-hand -hand sequence was top-notch also the way the the way the camera moved around and and portrayed the the emotions and and the thought process of all the characters that was also really well done there's there a lot of heart in this movie more than i was expecting i felt really invested in shang chi himself and it's also kind of funny because he changed his name to Sean when he was in hiding, which is kind of hilarious for me because, you know, it's literally my name. Yeah. But felt differently. And I really liked his pairing with Aquafina. I was a little worried about Aquafina coming into this because I didn't know what to expect. But, geez, she turned out to be one of the best characters in the movie, which is not what I was expecting at all. Yeah, you uh, mentioned the emotion of the camera. Sorry, Cam, I'm going to, I have to mention this first. Um, you mentioned the emotion and the camera work. And you have to remember this film was directed by Dustin Daniel Credden, who did um, that amazing movie with Michael B. Jordan last year. Um, God, I'm forgetting the name off the top of my head. <laughs> are you talking about Just Mercy? Yeah, Just Mercy. Yeah, he directed Just Mercy. So you, you, we've already gotten a feel of how well he deals with um, character work and emotion within his films. And you can see that with his camera work here in Shang-Chi, as well as the way it's written, because he also co-wrote the film as well. And that's on top of how beautiful the film works. Like the color grading is the best that the MCU's ever really had. And it made me and all the other um, film nuts on Twitter look like chumps when we tried to take apart the bus fight, thinking that, oh, the color grading's garbage, just like Black Widow and some of the other Marvel movies. And then we watched the film, and we're like, holy crap, this looks amazing. <laughs> it made us all look like idiots and honestly i could not be more happy about that <laughs> yeah also you mentioned andy chang being uh influenced by jackie chan there's also a scene a fight scene that takes place on a bamboo scaffold in shang chi that is pretty much i mean i'm not saying it's pure just influence for a pure homage to rush hour 2 but there's also a very similar scene in rush hour 2 that 
takes place on a bamboo scaffold. So little, some little uh, rush hour love, it seems like in the Shang-Chi film as well. So I, I was totally in love with that. That wouldn't surprise me at all. Again, like he was instructed by Jackie Chan himself. So it wouldn't surprise me if some of those more iconic moments in some of Jackie's films would be paid homage here. That's very common among action directors. Um, and I don't think that's even the first time the MCU's done homages like that. This is, it's just that because Jackie Chan's style is so unique, it's kind of obvious when it's done here. Um, and speaking again about the action, I think I mentioned that like one of the reasons why the action looks so unique, so unique here is because of the lack of um, CG involvement in, in a good amount of the, the movie's best set pieces. But even with some of the CG, the way that the Ten Rings specifically are used in the action set pieces involving them is just insanely brilliant. They, it has to be one of the coolest weapons I've ever seen in a comic book movie ever, just purely because of the way that Wen Wu's character uses them. Or even like Shang-Chi, because it feels like part of the character. Like when Wen Wu is using it, they're very brute force blunt objects. He's using them to empower his direct punches. Um, his very baseline um, fighting style. It's very brute force rather than technique based or, you know, more like Kung Fu and redirecting energy like how Shang-Chi's and his mothers are. Um, and I really love the way that the Ten Rings expressed the difference in personality and fighting style between the characters using them. It looked beautiful. It did. The, the rings were used so effectively. I was worried that it was going to be too much like a MacGuffin but it actually had a lot of personality to it. It was an extension of the users, kind of like, you know, lightsabers. I, I loved how they were used in so many different ways. And every scene that they were used in, I was blown away by what the rings could do. It, and it made the fact that, you know, the Ten Rings is literally in the title of the film. It, it, just, it just made it so satisfying because I didn't expect to be so in love with the Ten Rings themselves, I thought it was just going to be some dumb gimmick or something. But no, it wasn't. It, the, the fact that it was, it, it made it an extension of the characters using them so well. I, I was in love with it. Yeah, I'm sure there will be comic book nerds that don't love the fact that they sort of Ten Rings didn't have like a unique power or ability like they do in the comics. But I mean, I mean, it's, it'd be like if they introduced all the Infinity Stones in one movie and they'd explain what all of them did to us. Like I can, I can see why they wouldn't do that here. I think the explanation of them coming from space or whatever is good enough for me. Uh, can we talk about uh, Trevor Slattery for a second? All, that that totally blindsided me. Yeah, um, we of course back when we covered the Suicide Squad, we also talked about our excitement for Chang Chi because it was literally a week out from release when we covered um, the Suicide Squad. So. And we had Sam Turner on, and he talked about whether Trevor Swattery, like Ben Kingsley, would be in the film because his, he was cited on IMDb. And yeah, I kind of felt just a little bit of um, of pain from the fact that I like shoo shooed it during, I like foo fooed it during the the podcast we were recording, and then when he pops on the screen, I'm like, damn it, he was right. <laughs> and I enjoyed every moment he had on screen. I was really surprised that they actually found a really good way to implement him in the film. He had, like, I, while I wasn't, I didn't love every moment of comedy with him, just like I didn't love every moment of Aquafina's comedy in the film. I think that I liked his presence in it for the most part. And I think it was really nice. 
plus it gave us uh, Morris. So like, I love Morris. I want more Morris. I want a full Morris film. I need a, a plush of Morris to put next to my four foot Korg. I think it was just cool on, on Feige's part and just anyone who's who worked on Iron Man 3 to just be like, okay, let's sort of have a completely different mindset with this character, but also know that that character is still canon within the entire MCU. So it's just cool to see how they re brought him back in and then to just, just have that or to have that humor thrown in towards the very end and just done. I think, yeah, it didn't hit all the right notes, but just, it did enough to where like, okay, this is not an annoying character. It's actually a very level character and just a complete 180 from the stale boring character that we got in Iron Man three. Yeah. And like you mentioned the fact that he was stale in Iron Man three, the biggest reason why he isn't stale here is because he actually has an art. Um, and we'll talk more about the writing when we get the like the, the rest of the characters. But like the fact that such a minor character has just even such a well thought out arc, because Trevor's whole arc in the film was um, him being sheltered and him relying and like um, being scared of the Ten Rings and not like opening up and becoming open to the world around him. The becoming like extremely worldly and wise by the end of the film. That's like that's a crazy arc to have for such a minor character that only has like maybe five six minutes of screen time or something like that like it's a testament to how good the writing for the film is yes uh i loved every moment he was in personally i think his comedy hit all the all the right notes and i love how i love how in cinematic universes there are scenes or aspects of a film that makes another film better for example there is a scene in the last jedi that makes the entire prequel trilogy so much better. And this made Iron Man 3 so much better because even when Wu literally roasted uh, the fact that, that that people were scared of, what was it, an orange? Yeah, because the Mandarin is named after oranges. So yeah. 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 I love that moment because yeah, it's the, the name of the character is really silly in the comics and is very... Um, Chinese stereotypey, um, so it like it makes perfect sense for them to make fun of that here. Um, and before we get to the Wen Wu stuff, I want to talk a little bit about Shang Chi because he's of course the protagonist for the film, and I think that Simu Wu did just an absolutely amazing job as him. I I am impressed with the charisma that he brought to the character, considering how little of him was shown in the trailers. I was really worried that he was going to be kind of bland in the film. Um, but they did a fantastic job with him. And this is a character I, I've never really been familiar with in the comics. Um, so it was really cool to actually be introduced to a character and like him right off the bat. Yeah, I mean, it could have very, it could have gone very much uh, fish out of water type of thing. Like it was a little bit at the beginning, but it wasn't like, oh, what's going on here? What's going on there? How do you do this? How do you do that? No, it was, he knew, like he brought, like you said, he brought a lot of, charisma and also just you know just having just being a great um agently just just again this whole ensemble i think just knocked out of the park i mean you, you can't talk about the film without talking about um shangji's estranged sister zaya ling who i think yeah. I, I don't want to i don't want to botch your name but her last name goes by Zhang. i don't want to botch it so yeah I'm not gonna no it's fine um and like you speak about his sister this was her first ever film role ever like, not just Hollywood, like Tommy Wong, Tommy Wayu. This was her first role ever. Um, 
And I get like she only knew a little like she knew um, English and she knew Mandarin before doing the film. Um, and she was and if I remember correctly, there were even stories about um, her actually teaching members of the cast Mandarin on set. Because we, of course, hear several members of the cast speaking Mandarin in the film, which is really cool. 30% of this film was subtitled, which almost never happens in a blockbuster film like this. And I think that does a really good job of paying respect to the culture that they're pulling for the film. On top of like all the visual stuff with like the CG designs and all of that and the fighting choreography and, and just everything felt like a really nice um, cultural payoff to everything that they're pulling from Chinese myth and, and all of that. One thing that this film really had going for it extremely well are the flashbacks. There are a lot of flashback scenes. It's not a completely linear story. Mm -hmm. you, bas you basically, you know, jump around a lot in the timeline, but it does it extremely well and it fulfills it fulfills a lot of what we see in the flashbacks. You know, one thing set up in the flashbacks, then then it gets fulfilled later. Yeah. Towards, yeah, yeah it's really good use of Chekhov's gun. They're introducing an idea and then paying it off later. Yeah, especially where Shang-Chi is like, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to to kill the man, to kill the man who was truly responsible for my mother's death. But then well, it's actually they don't reveal whether or not he killed the person responsible for his mother's death. All they say is that he ran away afterwards. So they actually make it loose. They don't say whether or not he actually commit like killed him. They well, just he say said that he that went he on the mission and then that. left the Ten Rings. It's very vague and that's purposeful because I think it's a good way of showing that Chang Chi's character is morally gray. It's the reason why we can buy that he would actually want to kill his father and be willing to do so. Um, and speaking of that moment, I think that's Simu Wu. Like, he, like we mentioned his charisma and how good he is in like the comedic or like energetic moments of the film, but he's also really good in the dramatic moments. And he plays off of um, both the actress playing his sister, as you mentioned earlier, and um, Tony Leung, um, Wen Wu, a lot, really well too. Um, and I think that's really important considering that the family dynamic is the heart of this film. If that didn't work, the whole film would fall apart. But because their acting is so good and because the writing for those moments is so good, it, it makes the film probably one of the, one of the best heartfelt stories the MCU has told next to the Guardians of the Galaxy films. Can we agree that Win Wu is the best character in the film? He's not just the best character in the film. I would argue that he's the best villain Marvel has ever had. I don't know about that. He's I mean, they're some... good. He's pretty, pretty damn great. good, though. He's pretty great. I mean, if you look at the entire fold, yeah. I mean, there's I, not, I, yeah, there's I would not say many like... that have the emotional depth or ones that you would sort of feel bad for throughout and yeah. not, and understand I, where they're coming from. Yeah, I'd I say mean, he's really... up there with Killmonger and Thanos for me. Yeah, so top five easily. I have to go back and look through every villain, but yeah, he's up there. Yeah, he's amazing. I would, I would say he's like number three. Actually, nah, I'll still give him number two. I, I'm sorry, I can't put him above Thanos. I can't do I it. I mean, Thanos is awesome. Like, you're talking to one of the biggest Thanos fanboys on the planet. I love Thanos. I love Thanos before the movies. I had a poster of him in my room when I was in high school um, from the comics because of the, the recent Infinity event that was done in 2014. 
So I've loved Thanos for years, but I think I prefer um, Wen Wu as a character in the films more than film Thanos. Ooh. But again, that's just a testament to how good Tony Leung is as him. Um, Tony Leung has done a bunch of um, Chinese or Hong Kong romance and um, Kung Fu or action films. So this role is perfect for him. Like not only do, does he get a whole lot of action scenes to do and a whole lot of choreography to deal with, but he also gets really deep familial and romantic scenes. Like it, the, the opening scene with him um, fighting with um, the woman that would inevitably become the wife and the mom for Shang-Chi and his sister is probably my favorite scene in the whole film. I would and agree it's, with it's that. Just, it's so good. It looks amazing. And the writing for it is spectacular. And it feeds into Tony Williams' acting style just perfectly. This role was made for him, man. That was one of my favorite. That 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 was. De- I'll actually no scratch that. That is definitely my favorite scene, in in the in the whole movie. Every frame of that scene was so beautiful. I couldn't take my eyes off it. There there was there's a lot of attraction shown j- just through the fighting and. And, and and the two uh and, and their chemistry was absolutely perfection. The fact that they were able to, you know, basically fall for each other and using those motions to tell that, and then making their talking scenes afterwards so believable that it was truly draw drop. And that was really the that was, and that was the moment that really got me like, okay, I am fully invested in this film. Didn't take long. Because after I saw that scene, I was immediately 100% invested in the film. I could have watched a whole movie just with Tony Leung and Fao Chen, just like being, and their romance. It was so good for so little we got of it in this film. Um, And again, like the writing for this film is just spectacular. I can't believe it's as good as it is. Um, And like we mentioned how good, like Sean mentioned that you preferred the fight, the final fight between um, Wen Wu and Shang-Chi over the CGI climax. And I actually would have to agree with you on that. I think my only issue with this film is that I wish that they left the emotional core fight as the final climax rather than the, the fight between the dragons. That was cool. Like it looked great and I enjoyed watching it, but I wasn't as invested in that as I was um in the fight between father and son that was just before it. I would have preferred that being the final fight of the film, that being the final climax. And maybe it ending with Shang-Chi being forced to kill his father. Yeah, I mean, while I was watching the big CGI fight, it was cool, but I'm just like, this, this feels slightly anticlimactic. As, as, as good as it was, it just felt anticlimactic because of what all the emotions that came before it. Mm-hmm. And it, it it felt like it felt like we want we went from Shang Chi to Aquaman. That's what it kind of felt like. Well, here's the thing: it didn't really go from Shang Chi to Aquaman because you have to remember that Aquaman's final fight was still the really close up, one emotional, impactful one v one. This is true. Ocean Master and Aquaman. So, can't believe I'm going to say this, but Aquaman did one thing better than Shang Chi, and that is kind of oh painful. my god, <laughs> Aquaman is. Look, as campy as it is, it's not a bad film at all. No, it's it's super fun and enjoyable, and I love it for what it is. But it is kind of funny to think about that. <laughs> um, 
But no, and and even one of my other issues with the climax is I wish that his sister, again, played by um what's her name? Minger, I think it's Minger Zhang. Minger Zhang, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that she should have been more involved in the climax of the film because her character had just as much emotional weight between with the family dynamic because she was also abused by her father. She wasn't allowed to train with Shang because of her because she's female instead of male, and that was seen as weaker by her father. Um, who was inherently sexist because he was worried that he didn't want um, her to go through the same thing that her mother went through. While understandable, she had all this pain and and all this vendetta. Like she created her own fight club in order to make her own empire to show to her father that she could still build something from the ground up and be as strong and powerful as her brother. And I wish that she was involved more in the third act than she was. In all honesty, I could argue that she should have been the one fighting Zhang. Like, I know we needed somewhere to get Shang Ji and get him the rings, but she should have at least been a part of that fight. Like, it, it should have been, been a 2v1. Yeah, yeah, it should have been 2v1. It definitely should have just been Zhang uh, by himself. I would have loved to have seen yeah. Shai Li. Shai and, Li. I think, and I think um, what probably the moment they should have had was have, was have the, the sister be not just involved in the fight, but actually, um, like, get the rings and then hand them to Shang. And then have Shang be the one that uses them as, like, a rite of passage thing. As, like, her acknowledging that that's not what she wants for herself. I think that would have been a really cool character moment. But these are, like, minor complaints. This doesn't really hurt my overall opinion of the film. Yeah, that's the same way for me. Uh, yeah, I think with how well written the first, I mean, the first 95% of the film is, it doesn't bother me as much with the dragons and fighting all that just because everything was so good. It, it wasn't like, okay, we're building towards that big emotional brawl at the end. It, you got your emotion, you got your heart, you got your just incredibly stellar writing throughout the entire film. So get going into that um, climactic CGI heavy finale, you can you can sort of accept it because everything beforehand was just so well written. Yeah, and I know the one thing that we haven't talked about is Aquafina as the comic as like the comedic relief. But I thought it was real. I thought her character was really well done, and I really liked the arc that she had because she went from being a character with like no purpose, just want, just kind of going through life step step by step and enjoying it moment to moment, but not having any like larger goals or aspirations or any of that to like actually seeing her desk like grabbing destiny by the by the hands in the climax and being one of the reasons why they're able to defeat um the big evil demon monster at the end and i actually really liked that yeah i think also she's a good her character at least is just a good representation of just your everyday asian american because they they're like stereotype or not they're always set to have high expectations like you know there are people out there that'll be like hey this person should be excelling when they're just like okay i want to do things that you know an everyday white person does or an everyday black person does like they have such high expectations from whether it be family standards or just how society views just asians in general so to see her be represented to see an asian american be represented in this way and then to have her arc go from being this oh, well, I don't have a purpose. What was me to, okay, I'm going to, like you said, grab destiny by the horns. I think it's it's just very good representation to have, especially with as big of a franchise as the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the biggest in all of cinema. Yeah. 
And every single major character in the film had an arc. Like all of them had um, started at um, point A, missing something in their life or um, experiencing pain from past trauma. And they all either grew above their pain and trauma or accepted it, um, or they grew and were changed by the journey that they went on in the movie. And that's awesome. Um, that almost never happens in the MCU. I don't, I can't remember another, I think the last film I saw where every major character had an arc like that was the Guardians films. And that's like it. And even then the arcs um, in, the, in the two Guardians films, not every single character is treated similar, has a similar like well-developed arc. There's some that take priority. While I think here, almost everyone was on equal ground when it came to what arcs they had, when it came to at least the main cast. I would, I would agree. The writing was able to invest me in the, in the film from the start. I was, ne there was never really a dull moment in this film, even when the action was slow. I love the way they edited together all the, all the flashback scenes. That was really great. Love, love the uh, ending of this film where, where Zhang Shri and Aquafina, they, they go back to the to the bar with their two friends and they're telling them the stories of the final battle after in the film early in the film not having much to talk about i thought that was a great full circle moment there yeah and especially, most... and especially the moment where wong actually walks into them and they are forced to believe the story they were just told is wonderful our most beloved side character wong was just as great as we expected him to be yeah this <laughs> The karaoke scene in the mid-credits had me dying. That was just perfect. I, I really like Wong, and I hope that we see more of him. He's just a fantastic character, and Ben Dick Wong is amazing as him, as usual. Well, according, it seemed like in the mid-credits scene that maybe he is, he's going to have a bigger role with the Avengers instead of just, you know, ditching them at points, especially in Infinity War, where he kind of just bails from everyone. I mean, that, I mean when you have that amount of characters that's what you kind of have to do to some of them that's just how it is yeah but it seems like he's gonna play a i mean at least that mid-credits at least tease that he's gonna have a pretty large role as yeah an avenger when it all comes together again yeah i mean he's gonna be in no way home like we saw him in the trailer he's going to be a multiverse of madness and have a pretty major role there and i absolutely wouldn't be surprised if he appears in the avengers film however i think that if they do that they should have a more mystical threat for that team up film if they want to really bring Wong into the fight, I think that would be a good way to do it. And there's plenty of King mystical threats to deal with. Kang the Conqueror? I mean, like, they could... Yeah, but Kang the Conqueror is not a mystical threat. And I don't think that the MCU is going to deal with him that soon. We have, I think we have a while to go before we get Kang the Conqueror as a major threat. You have to remember that we're getting him in both the second season of Loki and in um, the third Ant-Man and the Wasp film first before we maybe get him in an Avengers film. So I think that's still a very long ways off. I'm thinking like if they do a smaller scale team up film before that, then that would be where to do it. Fair enough. There's a lot of ideas they could do for the Avengers from here on out. I mean, like Kong's the most obvious one, but now that they have so many of like the Fox verse characters, they could do Annihilation. They could do Secret Wars with Dr. Doom at some point down the line. There's so many storylines that they have access to because before they bought Fox, they really did just have um infinity war and that was about it when it came to like the big large-scale comic book events but now they have annihilation and secret wars and secret invasion king the conqueror and so many other big like major storylines that they could tackle at this point 
it's really cool to see. We could get like endless of uh, different Avengers films from here on out, and that's really exciting. It was cool. It, I'm, I'm not gonna lie, it was very cool seeing Captain Marvel and Old Man Bruce Banner in in the mid credits scene. I he looked very old. It was really weird seeing just Bruce and not Professor Hulk. Like I, I immediately, I was like, wait a minute, why is he Professor Hulk here? Shouldn't he be Professor Hulk? I thought that they had like the, I thought he was stuck like that after the events of, like um between like the time jump and Endgame. So I and they still haven't given an explanation for that yet. So I wonder if we're going to get one later on. It's really, I thought it was just strange. It was something that stood out to me. But <laughs> speaking of like the connection to the larger MCU, is there a specific character in the MCU that we haven't seen? Shang-Chi um, like interact with that you would love to see in a future film? See, if Chadwick Boseman had passed away, I would have said Black Panther. Because mm-hmm. that would have been interesting. I would love... Oh, I, I, I know, I know. I would love to see him interact with Star-Lord. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that would be really interesting. I mean, the big thing that we'd have to they get past or like Peter comparing in the all the kung fu action movies from the 70s and 80s. No, I think actually you make a good point there, Sean, because there, um, this film also had another pretty while it isn't a throwback soundtrack, it had a pretty uh, modern day soundtrack, it wasn't like your normal average film score. Of course, that was there, but there were songs written for this um for this film that you know like black panther and like some old songs for that were used for the guardian films it seems like there could be a comedic connection down the road with quill and um shang ji when it just comes to music in general so maybe that could be a little tease they throw in there because it's weird because you didn't you know you i wasn't expecting shang ji to have its original soundtrack with a lot of really talented modern day artists like anderson pax in there i think um a part of uh god why why am i ray shremmerd was in there i forgot the lead singer but sway lee was in there yes that was that was who it was it wasn't my style of music so i didn't really know this the, the original music this is, this is not not for me but yeah. i didn't think it took away from my enjoyment of the film it was just kind of there and i just kind of accepted it was when there. i heard anderson pack's voice at the end of the film once the once the credits are playing i was i had never been more satisfied in my life i told my i told sean right Right when it started playing, like I was just vibing after. Yeah, I I, I do remember that. I just remember, uh, yeah, I I I remember because me and Cam saw it with my girlfriend, and we all we all were very satisfied with what we saw. I just I, I love I just love the credits. Uh, oh, poor Cam having the fourth fourth wheel, a third wheel rather. Poor guy. I mean, if I hadn't had the, if I didn't go see it on Friday, I was glad we joined you guys. But I saw it the the night of its release because I just really wanted to see it. <laughs> uh, fair enough. But yeah, the the soundtrack was really great. I there's not really a part in the soundtrack that I didn't enjoy, which yeah. is and not mixed, something I can say about every MCU film. Yeah, and it mixed with the original score really well too. Um, something that even Black Panther didn't really have. This was like. I think this was the second superhero film that I've ever seen where like the, the original songs actually mixed with the original score really well. The only other one I can think of is, is uh, Spider-Verse. Um, so I hope that at some point they release the mixed songs because currently the only um, version of the songs released on Spotify are just the recorded songs and not them being mixed with the score. So it'd be cool to actually get that version of 
of the soundtrack at some point, but I don't know if we will. We didn't for Spider-Verse, so I don't know if we'll be able to for Shang-Chi, but that'd be really cool. I gotta be honest, I wouldn't mind seeing uh, Shuri and Aquafina team up. I, I think they, they would be pretty good friends, I think. Yeah, that would be an interesting yeah. dynamic. That would definitely lend itself to, to some good comedic moments. I don't know if we'll ever get that, just because I feel like Shang-Chi's world is a little too detached from um, the world of Wakanda because, I mean, the most mystical thing in Wakanda is like the idea of the Black Panther and how the Black Panther gets his power. Otherwise, they're pretty grounded in their technology and culture. Um, compared to the, the culture of Shang-Chi, which is really mystical, even more so than like something like Doctor Strange. So, but any final thoughts on the film before we move on, guys? Very, uh, finally... The first satisfying MCU experience in theaters since Spider-Man Far From Home. And I'm I'm excited for Eternals, which is in a month and a half, right? Not like yeah. we had a ton of uh, MCU films between... In theaters, in theaters, in theaters. In theaters, we have what, one? We had Black Widow in, in July, but I didn't go see yeah, that. Yeah, that was it. No we only had the one. But it's, it's like they're... They're playing catch up. You have to remember that we're getting four MCU movies this year. Like we have Eternals in what November, right? Yeah. And then we have yep. Spider-Man No Way Home in December because of yep. how well yeah. again, because of how well Shang-Chi did in theaters. Um, all the studios are okay with keeping the release dates. Like Venom, um, the sequel to Venom even moved its release date up earlier in October because of how well Shang-Chi did. So yeah. it's, yeah, it's awesome. I'm really glad that like, we're finally going back to the movie theater. I know that I, I, again, like if you weren't able to get out to the movie theater to see this, like if you were too afraid, that's perfectly fine. I can understand the paranoia or anxiety that comes with like everything that we've been going through over the last year. It's perfectly fine not to be comfortable going to the theater to see the film. But when it goes, if you weren't able to see it in theaters or, you, or you're too afraid to go, it is going to go up on Disney Plus next month for premium access for $30. So um, especially if it's cheaper, like if you have a family that would rather go uh, see it on Disney Plus because it's cheaper, because like $30 is a lot cheaper than like four or five movie tickets. Um, like seriously, watch this film. It's amazing. <laughs> it's so good. I agree. The other big cool happening that happened this past weekend was the Emmys. And I know that we um, specifically have to talk about the Mandalorian and WandaVision's wins, but I know that Sean, or not Sean, that I know that Sean has been watching Ted Lasso, and I know that you've been loving Ted Lasso, so how did you feel about Ted Lasso winning Best Comedy Series at the Emmys, Sean? I is, am so incredibly happy. Ted Lasso, first of all, you both need to watch this. Seriously, it's great. I know Winthrop, you're not a sports fan, but there's the, the writing is excellent. And Cameron, Man City is in the show. Do I have to say anymore? Okay, fair enough. I mean, but, I've had so many non-sports fans already tell me to watch the show, so. Yes, Ted Lasso is excellent. I even watched an episode today before I went to, before I went to my eight-hour shift. It's, it's so good. Like, I'm legitimately, like, implementing teachings from the show into my own personal life like that is how impactful the show is the fact that there are aspects of the show that i'm actually incorporating in my own life because it's so good 
Uh, Jason Sudeikis is perfect as Ted Lasso. I literally, he was born to play Ted Lasso. Also, Brett Goldstein as Roy Kent is one of the most hilarious, but but also best roles I've seen in television. Uh, Roy Kent's easily my favorite character in the show. Also, every character has arcs. We talked about in Shang-Chi how everyone had arcs. Yeah, Ted Lasso does too, big time. It's it's pretty incredible, honestly, about the arcs that everyone has in, in the show. And also, it's, it's the English Premier League with in a tv show it's also we're all students apple tv is free watch it but yes with it winning all those awards completely deserved i couldn't be happier please watch that lasso yeah and you mentioned um both like james jason sudikas and brett goldstein both of them won for the show as well um both of them got best actor and best supporting actor i think that um the best actress winner um, also was from Ted Lasso as well. So it won a lot of awards. So obviously yeah, yeah. a show to look out for. Yeah, Rebecca Welton, the um, the owner of the club who hired who hires Ted Lasso. This is this is like the first few minutes of the first episode, who literally hires Ted Lasso to be the coach so she can help so she can sabotage the team's chances of staying in the Premier League and not get relegated. It, it, no, Rebecca Walton's great, but she has an incredible arc. But yes, she, she she's great. Uh, I I never thought I would watch a show where you see an owner trying to sabotage her own crime to get back at her cheating husband. Yeah, it's I know insane. That, I know that we mostly want to talk about the the wins that we were excited and were happy about, but I think that's something that's really odd. I don't know if you guys saw um, Bone Burnham's Inside, but it's one of the most thought-provoking comedy specials in quotations um, that I've ever seen. And it's weird as heck to me that a recording of Hamilton from years ago that went on Disney Plus was what one variety special pre-recorded over inside. Yeah, like, I looked at what? that. That was, that was quite... That was a decision made. That was a vote casted by, I don't know, whoever is voting for this, but Get to it's, see it's Hamilton on here when it's, and stuff. yeah, when I see like yeah, sure, it's w- the most popular musical out right now. But when it's a recording of something that happened a really, really long time ago, especially when there's been a pandemic and it feels like everything pre-pandemic was ten years ago, I think it's just an odd placement. I think you have. I think it just kind of a feels like shade thrown at stuff that's happened post-pandemic because. It, it's been hard for everyone. Any creative, literally at any level, has struggled through the pandemic. And just to see that win over stuff that is still coming out, still great content that's coming out in arguably one of the toughest times we've ever seen in world history. I, I, I just, I find that to be, I find it to be a little dirty because just a lot of people that work so hard and it's been, it's never been harder for these people in a time like this. Uh, yeah, it just it didn't feel it doesn't feel right to see something like that get a get an award over all these great shows. Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, like, but again, that's like the only like at least category that I know enough to be like that's a really weird decision. Like, I can't talk about um, like the best actress like limited series loss for 
Anya, like Anya Taylor Joy and Elizabeth Olsen both lost to Kate Winslet, but I haven't seen Mayor of Easttown. I know Kate Winslet is an amazing actress, so I like, I really probably should watch it, so I have an opinion on this. <laughs> um, but luckily, when it comes to the Queen's Gambit, it won basically every other award it was involved with. It won Best Limited Series. It won Best Direction for a Limited Series. It why I'm so happy it got awards because the Queen's Gambit was probably my favorite um, live action television series to come out of last year. Yes, I actually reviewed the Queen's Gambit for 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 the clinic for the Candy Clark when that was still a thing. I remember, I remember I was all alone for Thanksgiving break last year because you know Cam was in California and everyone else was what well, was home except for me, for me. So I was just surfing through my phone on Netflix, seeing if there's anything interesting. And I see a trailer for Queen's Gambit. And I'm like, you know what? I'm bored. Let, let's check this out. I think, I think I finished the show the next night because that was absolutely incredible. You can check out, you can check out my review on, on, on the Rich Report um, or, or the Can of Clark. But the, the Queen's Gambit is fantastic in every single way. I believe I gave it a nine and a half out of 10. And to see it when Best Limited Series made me so happy because it, it's it's the ultimate show that i just watched it on a whim for the hell of it no one no one recommended it no one really said much about it i just watched it because it was it, it, it the trailer popped up on netflix and i love it and, and yeah if you haven't watched the queen's game i highly recommend doing so looking at you cameron yeah i mean it was the show that turned me into a shocking blue fan like not only did i absolutely love the show but I love the music so much that I listened to Shocking Blue's entire catalog after finishing the series. That is awesome. <laughs> so, because they did um, Venus, the song Venus from the show. And yeah, I fell in love with it. I shazammed it. I listened to their whole catalog immediately after finishing it. So, but no, I thought the series was great. I love Anya Taylor-Joy. Um, and it, I think that she's an amazing actress and has a really bright future ahead of her. Um, and she's going to be in Last Night in Soho in October. So yeah, speaking of that, I saw saw some early reviews, and it's it's a little bit mixed right now. Yeah, you know? I, I mean it's an Edgar Wright film. You have to remember that outside of Scott Pilgrim, like Scott Pilgrim wasn't received very well when it was in theaters either. The only critical success that Edgar Wright has ever had was Baby Driver. The rest of his films were really mixed. So that's pretty par for the course. Yeah. I can't. I, wait. I, I mean, yeah. I mean, my excitement doesn't change. It's part of the October movie marathon. It has Matt Smith in it. It has Anya Taylor Joy in it. What could I not love about this movie? Like, it's directed by Edgar Wright. It's like it was made for me. <laughs> so yes, and I and the and the three of us are definitely seeing this in theaters together. Oh, absolutely! It comes out yeah, on the 29th, f- right? Yeah. If you can't forget Thomas and McKenzie either from Jojo Rabbit. Yeah, yeah. That's right. He's going to be in it too. Oh, it's such a good cast. Oh, my God. I can't wait. Yes. I mean, it's an Edgar Wright film. I mean, in my top 30 all-time favorite films, I have two Edgar Wright films in there. Baby Driver and Scott Pilgrim are two of the best films I've ever seen. The World's End is also pretty amazing. So I, I'm i extremely excited for The Last Night in Soho. And obviously, Cameron, that was a genius move to put it in your October movie marathon. <laughs> can't forget Halloween Kills as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Halloween Kills can be great. Now, the original obviously is great. The 2018 film is also great. So, I'm not, I'm not sure how they're going to top 2018 with this. It looks oh, really good. 
all I've heard is that they're 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 holding back no punches when it comes to the kills. So give me all of it, please. Yeah. Um, and the last thing I kind of want to comment on when it comes to the Emmys is that this year, more than any other, we had an astounding amount of non like non just straightforward like dramas nominated. I mean, we had things like Lovecraft Country and The Mandalorian and The Boys and WandaVision get a lot of nominations. And this is the first time in years that it seemed like the nominees were dominated by genre shows, like non um, traditional um, drama series. Um, like you also get things like Ted Lasso winning so much or like Cobra Kai getting um, attention as well. So there's a lot of just non straightforward traditional dramas um, shown here at the Emmys and the nominees. And that's amazing. I mean, you still have things like the crown winning a lot, which is the be expected. But I think if anything, this shows that we're starting to, to get more content that used to be more niche becoming more mainstream and then also being recognized by award shows. And that's awesome. It reminds me of The Shape of Water winning Best Picture back in 2017. We're starting to get these these things that typically aren't recognized as um as like award-winning television actually get nominated for stuff ah the shape of water that was that was a movie experience to say the least i will say this about having these non-traditional more i'd say um there's no better term. i would say more popular friendly like how music is radio friendly this is more like there are more shows out there that are becoming more uh let's say i'll say fan culture friendly like i mean look we got the boys we got the mandalorian on there i mean a lot of people follow this is us but i know that show's kind of falling off a little bit um but it's only going to help us it's only going to help um future creatives future directors say all right people we see all these superhero shows now all right so how do we build a unique original show that people get on it 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 gets us out of that traditional norm of okay you know like this is us you know there's feel good stuff and you're also going to cry but what what's going to break out and be that original thing that everybody turn tunes into queen's gambit limited series but still that stuck out to a lot of people across from all this very uh superhero fantasy heavy stuff so i think we're only gonna get more of those down the line to combat or not even not even combat but to contrast those um major fantasy uh comic book character type shows so i think it only helps people you know a lot of people want to say a lot of old heads want to say superheroes are killing film and tv but I mean, you honestly, like, there are... you look at WandaVision and you look at Loki and you look at what Marvel's doing with What If and you look at The Boys or like the Harley Quinn animated series and all of them are so unique and different. And the writing for, for these shows is just really good or unique and, and has as much weight as most of the dramas that we see most of the time. And they absolutely can hold their own against um, like our conventional dramas. Yeah. Um, again, like we have things like Lovecraft Country, which is one of the best shows I've ever um, seen. That's like that's like a genre series that's not like super mainstream, and that's fantastic. Like, please, if you like Jonathan Majors and Loki, please go watch Lovecraft Country. He's amazing in it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah HBO yeah. Max, like it's right there. <laughs> yeah, and you'll get great, great original shows that will 
contrast those superhero comic comic films and shows that everyone will kind of lean toward to. But also when people say, yeah, well, we know what we're going to get in comic book um, storytelling, uh, Loki, unique, WandaVision, unique. Like I was nervous for the future of the MCU post-Endgame. It feels like everything from a writing standpoint and story, storytelling standpoint is getting better and With better the and the better. Black and Widow. Better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Black Widow wasn't supposed <laughs> to I mean, come you got to have a blip somewhere. It was, yeah. It was, it was, it was, it was poor timing. It yeah. was poor timing. But, and again, like, as you're mentioning, the playing field is getting more even when it comes to just overall, what types of shows are getting on in now. In past years, when it came to like these genre, like fantasy sci-fi television series, it was really sporadic. Like it was really just, Game of Thrones, maybe Westworld every once in a while. We had Watchmen nominated the year it came out. That was about it. That's all we really got. It was very sporadic, but it's like the sheer number of genre series that were nominated this year is just insane. And it's awesome and, re- and really cool to see. And hopefully that um, stays consistent over the next few years, assuming that the genre shows we get are just as good. Again, we have like the third season of The Boys coming. We're getting a second season of Loki, and I'm sure that the first season will be considered for next year's Emmys as well. So that was a fun trip. The boys, the boys is great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the boys was great as was invincible. Yeah. My only complaint about some of the award shows is I noticed that what well, uh, the Emmy still doesn't consider animated television. And I, everybody knows that like I'm the whole like, animated television guy. I think that animation is amazing. It's such a good medium for storytelling. And it is still such a shame that it isn't considered as such by the Emmys yet. Maybe one day we'll get there. Um, but that also requires us having um, animated television series in the West be more, not just comedic um, weaning. I mean, and we have if, things if, like we have things like Castlevania and Invincible and Blood of Zeus and the, Primal and Samurai Jack, but that's like about it. I want to know how the Ameri- the total American contingency would react to something like ReZero. You think they'd take it well? Or you think it'd be hated? I feel like the audience for something like ReZero would probably be somewhere the the audience for BoJack Horseman. Um, it would be really again like you have to consider the fact that even among um, the anime community, ReZero is considered really popular here in the West, and that's mainly because of the second season, how long it had to sit on people's minds with four years between seasons one and two. But most of we're starting to get to the point where most of the anime that are mainstream in the West aren't just like your pure like action fun stuff like Dragon Ball or. As good as My Hero Academia is right now, I can't deny that a good chunk of it is just like pure fun action stuff, which can be good, but like, or like things like Naruto or One Piece, like like most of the really popular stuff in Western um, animation, like in the West when it comes to anime or like these big, um, like very easily to access action shows. It's not really any of like dramas, like you're not like Fruits Basket um, just overtook Full Metal on um on Mal, my anime list, um, when its final season premiered or finished up back in May. So that doesn't happen very often. And I think that we're starting to see a cultural change. It's, it's the same thing with like JoJo starting to becoming mainstream with the finals, with its newest season hitting Netflix in December. It's insane that we're finally growing from um, anime, like the popular anime being more wide in genre-wise than it was before when it was just things like Dragon Ball or Cowboy Bebop. 
Yeah, and every time we mention anime, like I always get like, I always get like sort of nostalgic because I really miss watching Orgyra. I really miss watching a race, even though we completed those. Watch I'm like, basket. do I just go watch back and basket. watch those two? Do I get something no, just new watch that was similar basket. to those two? I probably <laughs> will get to that basket. at some point. It's just it's yeah, so it, good. Like it literally, is... it's it's as good as Horimiya, except it's like four times oh, as long. Man. And it has See, the same now, ADR now, director. So the See, voice now, direction is just as good. Now I'm going to be sad now because that's like top three right there. Because I know ReZero will have more seasons, but I definitely missed Eventually. the race. I, I, <laughs> I mean, mean, we still yeah. don't have a confirmation on when the third season is coming. But I, we're, they've said that we're going to get one. And with how popular we, the second season was in both Japan and in the West, I would be really surprised if we don't get one. Yeah. But you have to consider the fact that it took two years for the first season, uh, for the second season to get confirmed. Because it wasn't confirmed until 2018. It didn't start production until late 2019. And then its production got pushed back because of COVID. We're gonna be we're gonna be on walking canes and yelling at little kids to get off our lawn by the time season three comes out. And the worst part is because I know um the the plots for the next two arcs of ReZero, and I know it's going to it'll probably push it into becoming one of my favorite anime. It might even overtake it probably won't overtake full metal. But it could absolutely overtake Fruits Basket with the with the stories that they're going to be tackling in the third season. Uh, Sean, I, mean, I think all... we might have to, Sean, I think we might have to watch Fruits Basket just to get me off of missing uh Horimiya and Erased and Orgairu. Yeah, you should watch Fruits Basket. You would also probably love Steins Gate. Because you're probably one of the few people would actually be able to handle how slow the beginning of Steins Gate is. <laughs> it's one of those really heavy build-up shows that takes 12 episodes to get to the like the the grit, but when you get to the grit, you're gonna to want to binge the rest of the show. <laughs> it's good. You'd probably, I think, like Fruits Basket and Steins Gate would be right up your alley. What about that Vivi show you're watching. Oh yeah, and Vivi would be perfect too. I mean, it's it's written by Tepe Nagoski and it's animated by Wit Studio, so who did Great Pretender. So, <laughs> I and it's and Vivi's only what thirteen episodes. Like it, it's yeah, it's great. And again, like it's written by Tepe Nagoski, who created ReZero. So it's about the same tonally. Um, it's also really amazing. I think that it's in my top 10 favorite anime now, but it's also really niche. Um, but considering that you like ReZero, I don't know what your grasp on sci-fi television is, which is the only reason why I'm not like hard selling Vivi, because it's very hard sci-fi. Like if you if that's not like your thing, like if you don't like um sci-fi storytelling through a political lens, then I don't know if Vivi would be right up your alley, but the storytelling is pretty similar to ReZero. Um, it's just as dark. It's literally about like trying to avert the apocalypse. So it's it's good. And it has some really neat time travel aesthetics too. So, but I would, I would recommend Fruits Basket and Steins Gate before Vivi, um, just because I know for certain that you would like them. I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, or like the Rising of the Shield Hero too, but I would probably wait until after the second season finishes up so you could just binge the whole thing. Because <laughs> we're getting the second season of Shield Hero next year. And that's also like ReZero, um, tonally and writing-wise. But again, my overall summing up thoughts, I wish that more animation was um, considered for the Emmys. Um, that would be amazing. Um, and in hand in hand, I wish that more non-comedy series were made in the West. Like it's one of the reasons why I like um, like the newest Masters of the Universe series so much because 
while it is like aimed at kids, it's kind of like Star Wars, The Clone Wars or Young Justice or She-Ra, where it actually deals with some really good writing concepts that anyone could really consume and enjoy, which is really awesome. Well, Cam, it's been awesome having you on. And of course, where can people find you at and what do you have coming up on the Rich Report before we leave you? Well, similar to where you find Wintrope stuff, we're, we all post on the Substack newsletter. You can subscribe to $5 for $5 a month, get all of our great content. You also get a shout out on the radio show every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 8 to 10 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. Come on. Come on. I know you all want a shout out on the show. Please, please, please subscribe to the Substack. I mean, we, we, there's just a lot of work. A lot of work has been put into making this. I mean, this is my, fourth year with the brand Wincho's been killing it with content sean's killing it with content people work our work definitely isn't free so that's all i'm saying it's cheap five dollars a month please we we'd appreciate the help i mean or yeah. fifty dollars a year and sean and i yes are going off to vegas this weekend to cover the nascar playoff races I've got my weekly Raider piece, my weekly Oregon piece, Sean's Patriots piece, his Trojan piece, which is going to be pure flames whenever he's got it ready. A lot of stuff coming out. I mean, we're just pumping stuff out pretty much every day at this point. Yeah, I know, of course, you have a lot of sports stuff coming, but is there any entertainment stuff that people might want to be looking out for as well? I am very much behind on my album reviews, but I will get to them at some point. Don't you worry. I mean, look, we had Donda, we got Certified Lover Boy, and a couple of other artists I listened to. If you everybody listens to Duckworth or Little Sims out there, those reviews are coming as well. And of course, the October movie marathon is coming just a week and a half out. Sean, I know you can't wait. I can't wait. It's always yeah. the most exciting time of the year. And I promise you, I will not get sick Halloween Day. Because yeah. that was one of the worst days of my life. And just as a little teaser, what's the first movie you'll be covering for that marathon? So we are actually doing the Fear Street trilogy that's on Netflix to start it off. And then we'll get into more individual films going on. Slither's on there. Slither's towards the beginning. But our first three films we'll be covering will be the Fear Street trilogy that came out on Netflix a couple of weeks ago. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on, Cam. And of course, if you guys want to find the movie, it's also at The Rich Report on Twitter. And of course, he's pumping out articles every single day. And considering that he is also the one that publishes my stuff, I kind of have to send for him. Appreciate y'all. Thank you. Uh, of course, thanks for coming on, Cam. All right, okay. anime-wise, we had two absolutely amazing episodes of My Hero Academia. Oh my God, it's here. We made it to the good stuff that we've been waiting for all season. We finally did it, Sean. We made it through the, the just okay arcs the the meat endeavor stuff to finally get to the meat the grittiness that we've wanted and it's my villain academia it's here it's good it's dirty it's bloody it's destructive and very violent and maybe depressing <laughs> yes so um if any of my hero academia fans who are anime only thought man really haven't gotten much of tomar shigaraki yeah we really haven't we haven't really gotten a whole lot of shigaraki since season four during the the overhaul or even, i guess heroes just, rising as well but but even just the entire show i mean obviously he's been big in the biggest moments but we've always wondered okay what's this guy's deal and we got so much shigaraki content in these two episodes it and there's it, only more to come and i, I love it because he's always been one of my favorite villains in the show 
So I'm I'm so glad to be finally getting so much of him. <laughs> yes, the guy literally has to defeat a basically a a, a metacorp guy. Yeah, Gigantomachia. Gigantomachia. Who has a body so powerful that it could handle multiple quirks without being a gnomon. Yes, and he only sleeps about 30 minutes, which means that, that Shigaraki... Three, well, three hours. He sleeps three, three hours. hours at a time. Yeah, but it's not long at all. But no. basically, for over a month, Shigaraki has, has, has been fighting this thing for 21 hours a day. Yes, with help from the other members of the League of Villains, of course, but he's been, with, with just the exceptions for the time that Gigantomachia has to sleep, that's all the rest he's been getting. He's been awake fighting him 21 out, 21 out of 24 hours every day for a month. That's insane. Uh, that's a lot of drive. And I mean, considering um, what he'll get from this, being able to actually access the full strength of the Nomus that our evil mad scientist doctor guy is making for the League of Villains, it only feels natural that he would feel so driven to defeat Gigantomachia. At the same time, he also has to deal with the Liberation Army, who seem to be rather envious of the spotlight the League of Villains have been getting in the media. Well, yeah, because we have because the Liberation Army really hasn't come to the forefront until now, basically. Yeah. And even then, they're nowhere near as publicized as Hero Killer Stain or the League of Villains. Yeah, like most of the members of the League of Villains are pretty much public knowledge now. I think that the majority of the public knows who Shigaraki is. They know who Stain is. They know about Dobby. They know about Toga. They know about Twice. They've seen the faces of the League of Villains on the media because of the events of seasons three and four and seasons one and two as well. So they're very popularized and the media loves talking about them because of how interesting they are. It gives them views. It gives them screen time. And, and people love questioning whether Hero Society is right. I mean, there's tons of average people in My Hero Academia's world that agree with um, Stain's ideologies, as we saw near the end of season two. So it's, it's no surprise that the League of Villains are being so popularized. And the Liberation Army has been around for years. They've always been in the shadows. But now, because of all the attention the League of Villains have been getting, they're jealous, they're envious of all this attention, and they want some of that for themselves, and they think they can get that by dethroning the League of Villains and by defeating them in front of the world. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, um, and of course, just from going from the first episode, what did you think about um, Redestro from when we are first introduced to him? as the leader of the Liberation Army. He's very conniving, very calculating, very cold. It kind of reminded me of basically, I, I hate using Star Wars comparisons all the time, but I'm sorry, I can't help myself. But like, th this, this guy kind of acts like Thrawn, a very intelligent, behind the scenes, very charismatic, but calm leader. Someone who doesn't get easily faced, someone who is always thinking three steps ahead, someone who clearly is very intelligent in what he does and is a great leader. Yeah, that, that's absolutely. The vibes I got from him. Yeah, and he's, of course, I don't know if you noticed this, but in the dub, he's voiced by Sonny Strait, who is, of course, the voice actor for Maze Hughes from Full Metal Alchemist. And presently. And, 
Well, former voice actor for President Mike, as a little correction from what from our last episode, Sonny Strait hasn't voiced President Mike since the beginning of season two due to issues with his voice. And President Mike is actually handled by Dave Trosco and has been since um, the middle of the second season. I didn't know this. I know oh, you I can't tell working. because of how close he matches Sonny Strait's voice. So you genuinely, I couldn't tell at all without looking it up. Damn, my life is a lie now. I thought yeah. I was sitting straight the whole time. Yeah, there's very slight differences between their performances, but it's almost unnoticeable. It's insane. I can't believe I know. I'm very surprised I didn't know this before now. But yeah, Sunny Straight is the voice of Redestro here. So that's pretty neat. Yes, it like, and now that I think about it, he sounds just like Hughes does when he's having his serious conversations with uh with Roy Mustang, mm-hmm. thinking about it. Yeah, he definitely um, brings a, a little more drama and gravitas to his role as Redestro more so than any other character he's voiced before, which is really cool. Um, and of course, I'm sure the thing that you're most dying to talk about when it comes to the first, when it comes to episode 19 at least, it, or not episode 19, episode 20 at least, is Shigaraki's backstory because we finally get the first few pieces of it. Were you expecting it to be as dark and sympathetic as it ended up being? No. Would you care to give us the gory details, please? So as revealed, and I know that they're going to touch on even more of his backstory over the course of the show, because we also got bits and pieces of it in episode 21 as well. But in episode 20, it's revealed that we already knew that Shigaraki was picked up from by All for One, um, orphaned without a family um, to care for him. But in episode 20, we found out why that is the case. And it's because Shigaraki's quirk was a weird mutation. Um, something that doesn't, very, doesn't happen very often in the world of My Hero Academia, because usually quirks um, come from the quirks that their parent, that one's parents had. And because we know that um, one of Shigaraki's, uh, I think his grandmother or great-grandmother was Nanashimura, the previous holder of One for All, we know that um, his parents probably had quirks too, but his quirk was a mutation. He didn't um, get, he didn't inherit the quirks from his parents. He inherited his disintegration quirk. And of course, because he, along with his family, didn't know this, um, he accidentally murdered his entire family, including his household dog, because that's really gruesome. And all that remained And I'm not sure if this is actually the case because it could absolutely just be all for one trying to traumatize Shigaraki more to turn him into the villain that he would inevitably become. But all for one says that that all that's left is their hands. And that's what Shigaraki wears on his body. All those hands that he has on his costume are the hands of his family that he killed. Oh, this whole flashback was basically Golden Wind flashback on steroids. Oh my God. Yeah, it was very traumatic. Yes, it, it reminded me of, I can't believe I'm saying this. You actually wrote about this movie for the Canon Clark, but it reminded me of the first part of the very first X-Men movie where, where Rogue basically is sent to Professor X's school because of, of, her, of her mutant powers. Well, where... she's not sent to Professor X's school. She goes on the run because she almost killed a boy by trying to kiss him. Um, but she inevitably finds herself at Professor X's school because they find her. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, basically the same. Yeah, so so kind of it kind of reminded me of that. And this is like a much darker version of that. 
in, in yeah, the first this is, It's very brutal. I think that so far throughout this arc, they are building up the League of Villains to be some of the best written characters in the entire show. And some of the best written villains I've seen in any show, any anime I've watched so far. I mean, the like Shigaraki alone, his backstory gives most comic book villains a run for their money with how well it, with how good it is and how much it affects um, the motivation and, and like makes us sympathize with the character despite how evil he is. Which is, and this isn't the first time My Hero did this because they also did that with Overhaul in season four. Yes, and, and now Shigaraki's not the only villain to get to to get a backstory basically oh absolutely not and that's and shigaraki's is only the first in this arc that we get and i think this arc uh, like shigaraki's obviously one that gets the most attention because he's the leader of the league of villains but so far in this arc we've had a lot of time shared with each member of the league of villains we've gotten a decent amount of time shared with spinner of all characters um our reptile looking member of the league of villains that has a lot of stain's costume design ingrained on him um, we have spent a lot of time with Compress and Dobby and Twice, and I know Twice had an episode focused on them back in season three, but it's really cool getting so much time spent with the League of Villains. And of course, the second, the one that has the second most amount of screen time from these first two episodes is Toga, and we get Toga's full backstory. And I actually can understand why so many people like this character now. I initially, um, in seasons three and four, I didn't fully understand why so many people like Toga. I've never been the hugest fan of Yandere's um, in anime. And while I thought Toga was an interesting villain, I never like thought that she was compelling or like liked her as a character. And episode 21 completely changed my opinion on her. Yeah, basically she was interviewed, interviewed, and as a journalism major, I found that I found the whole uh, action set piece really funny because because, you know, I am a journalist and basically it's like I, we want to know your story. And I'm just thinking to myself, oh, my God, they're making fun of my entire major. Someone help. Yeah. And but on top of, yeah, I also really liked how close um, the the interviewer's quirk was because it's a landmine quirk. I, it reminded, I couldn't not think about Killer Queen from JoJo's during that because <laughs> it's basically the same power. Turns things into a bomb. It's just that the bombs aren't nearly as lethal as Killer Queen's unless used in abundance. Or you turn a person into a bomb, then it's pretty lethal. Which she did. I, it was, I'm impressed with how dark this arc is. I mean, they straight up had members of the Liberation Army kamikazeing themselves to try to kill Toga. That's just brutal, man. Yeah, and basically Toga's whole thing is that she wants to she wants to be the people that she loves. Which Yeah. Um yeah, Toga's whole backstory is based on the fact and it's based around the idea that the people in my hero, their personalities are built from their quirks. Um, we see this a lot in Ida with how um, fast he talks in his movements. Um, we see this in Aoyama and how showmanshipy he is. We see this in Tokoyami with how reserved he is because his quirk relies on darkness. So he likes to hide in the background in the shadows. And Toga takes this idea to the logical extreme because her quirk is based on ingesting people's blood. So she has a fascination with blood ingrained in her. And I love 
the line that it's not her fault that she behaves this way. It's society's fault for saying that it's wrong and not doing anything to help her. Yeah, because because totally bullying people and making fun of people for things that are weird totally is the right way to yeah. do And it wasn't that she was bullied. It's that um, she was told by her parents and by society to hide who she really was from the world. And she kept up that smiling, nice face that's talked about by the by about some by some of her classmates um, that were interviewed after um, the incident where she after her first kill. Um, and again, like everything that she does is a reflection over the fact that her true personality was hindered during her entire life until she couldn't hide it anymore. It's, yeah. it's, it's not her fault that she is the way she is. And that's really sympathetic. I mean, I, I don't condone her actions. Um, there's definitely, she could have definitely limited herself, but it's, she's not the only one to blame for the way that she she is and i think that that's really good writing it is really good writing like like seeing basically T- uh, toga's parents berate her for her fascination i got a bit disgusted to say the least yeah that's um yeah it reminded me of how yuki was treated in fruits basket oh that's a great comparison i would agree with that yeah just to like a bit more of an extreme <laughs> um and it's kind of like Altoga's like had the opposite kind of character like growth. She like she had a regression in character compared to the Yuki, where she kind of was more. She took all the worst aspects and and took all the worst things from it rather than as she didn't have anyone to, to console her. Like Yuki, at least had Haru and and Rin and eventually Shigure and Toru as well, um, but Toga had no one. She was all alone for years until she eventually met like Dobby and, and twice and um, became part of the League of Villains and kind of I and and found the family there. And I like that's it's 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 nice and also really dark. And I I'm really impressed with how much they're making me sympathize with the villains. Yeah, my villain academia has been really cool so far. I'm excited to see the development from the other League of Villain characters which when it's all done, they're just going to be just an absolutely incredible villain group that is going to make me even more invested in the conflict that is to come. Yeah. And I'm excited to see Twice's backstory. Yeah, actually, I think Twice had my favorite moment in episode 21 because when when he sees um, Toga bruised and battered from um, her fight, um, we see Twice actually like caring about Toga and I really love him pointing out the fact that she's the only one that he has ever been able to find solace in because of the members of the League of Villains, Toga's the one that's most close to how Twice is. They're, they both have personalities that were affected by the quirks that they were burnt, that they were born with. And out of the members of the League of Villains, they're the only ones that understand each other's pain and, and tragedy. And I love that moment where Twice is just crying over toga and it's the first time that we see like the the two halves of his bipolar personality actually agree for once without the mask being off yeah which was really jarring to see at uh at the end of the episode and seeing twice find toga unconscious yeah 
I'm pretty sure he's my favorite member of the League of Villains. <laughs> While Dobby is definitely mine, I can't disagree with that either. Yeah, I love I love Twice. I'm so excited that they get to episode 21 and actually see his full story play out. We're, of course, also recovering to your eternity each week. And we, of course, watched episodes 9 and 10. And this, is, of course, is a continuation of the arc that we started with episode 7 and 8, getting more time with Gugu, seeing his character development, seeing him develop this brotherly bond with Fushi, but we also get the return of what I know as the Knockers, otherwise known as our main antagonists for the series, as they can take away the lives that Fushi keeps inside of him. Yes, the Knockers, a very interesting name for this, this, this creature that keeps attacking Fushi. And Fushi actually gets overpowered this time because as the overseer or the divine being or whatever, whatever his name is, uh, keeps saying they learn from defeat. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like the Omnidroid from the Incredibles. It learns every time it loses. Yeah. Which or like a Mazo from Justice League. Or what? Or a Mazo from DC. You don't know about a Mazo? No. A Mazo's whole thing is that, um, he copies the powers of superheroes. But yeah, no, it, it's a really cool concept. And seeing Fushi get overpowered was jarring because Fushi had never really lost a fight before that. And then suddenly he gets completely overpowered and Gugu has to save him. Yes. And he almost, once again, he almost loses some of the, the memories he keeps inside of him in the process as well, which could be really frightening. And his takeaway from this fight is to just not transform into his other mem- into um, the other people that he has inside of him and just remain as the, the the form of the young boy. Yeah, and I love when Gugu runs back to the farm. He runs into Reen's parents and he's in an absolute panic, but 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 Reen's parents are trying to take trying to take Reen away because she runs for, away from home a lot, which is pretty hilarious. <laughs> well, because she doesn't like the decisions her parents are making for her, which is pretty par for the course when it comes to the girls and these style of storytelling. It, it reminds me of Toph from Avatar The Last Airbender. Ooh, I like that comparison. Yes. Toph's parents like, oh, she's, she's, a, uh, she's a very harmless little girl that needs us to help. Uh, she invented a whole freaking Subgenre of earthbending, which is still one of those awesome moments of the whole show. Absolutely. She's just like, oh, what are you going to do? Metal bend? Two seconds later, she metal bends. It's awesome. But yes, no, no, it's a great comparison. And seeing Goku being resourceful to put out, to create the fire, using the alcohol within it was so gross, but it was so resourceful. And it showed... That yeah, Gugu's a badass more than just a a a victim laden character. That that I just felt so bad. I'm like, damn, this is badass as well. Yeah, um, I, Gugu is probably my favorite character into your eternity so far. I've only seen the first fourteen episodes, but out of the first fourteen, he's definitely my favorite. Ah, so I'm almost caught up to you at this point. Yeah. Well, we get an episode of the week, so. And this yeah. arc goes on until episode 13, I think. So after after the knocker is driven back, what do you think of adult Gugu? Yeah, uh, it's so weird seeing because again, like Gugu is aging because he's staying in the same form for years. 
So because of that, he actually gets to physically age. So that'll, of course, get reverted if he transforms again. But it's actually neat seeing him, seeing his physical body kind of match his mental state for once. Yeah, because we see him buff. And I love how Fushi, who basically has no limitations anymore, you know, he all, basically is almost fully human with his capabilities. And the fact that Gugu not only looks buff, but also Fushi went out of his way to be like, Gugu is strong, I want to be, I want him by my side to help me. That's not something I really expected to see, see from Fushi, because before that, Fushi was just an orb who wandered. But now he's like, hey, I want I want this guy. I want him by my side. Absolutely. And and yeah, I think that the the brotherhood, the brotherhood, like the, the brotherliness or brother relationship between Gugu and Fushi is very well done. Um, it, it's probably I mean, there aren't really a whole lot of like brother relationships in anime that we can really compare it to. But like uh, obviously the, the standard is Ed and Al and Full Metal. I definitely think that that's a pretty good comparison for them. That's that's a bold comparison, but I like I'm not it. saying they're as good. I'm just saying that like they their relationship is, is almost as well developed as Ed and Al's, which is incredible considering um, that we've only spent a couple episodes with them. Yeah, and I'll, I I want to see more of them because now that they're basically an established pair, what do we see with that going forward? Please don't die, Gugu. Please don't die. I mean. You know how the last two stories ended. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm just saying that from the way that the last two arcs ended, it's not a bad assumption. <laughs> Dude, if, if Gugu dies, I might actually be bawling. Yeah. And considering the whole story is that uh, our love, like the whole like theme of To Your Eternity is that our loved ones are never truly gone. They stay with us after they die. I'm not okay with this. This this is not okay, but but no, I I I really really love Gugu. I really like Erica Mendez um, as him. Of course, now that he's older, that means we're going to have a new voice for Gugu in the next couple episodes. So, unless he already had one at the end of episode ten, I don't remember. He did. It was a it was a bit. It reminded me of, pa- of Bryce uh, Pappenbrook as uh, Inosuke at the end of. You want to know? You want to know why it reminds you of Bryce Pappenbrook as Inosuke? Because it is him. Because it is him. Holy shit! I was right. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. I was so happy when I heard um, Bryce Pappenbrook come out of Goo Goo because a that's perfect casting because he is so good as Inosuke. Secondly, I like Bryce Pappenbrook now. Which I can't believe because I really was never the hugest fan of him. I liked him as Masomi and Durara, but Demon Sword was the one that made me go, oh, so he can actually be like good in things. Interesting. And then he gets cast as old, older Gugu into your eternity, and it's just the best. That's just the best casting, and I love it so much. Yes, I literally was just like, you know, it kind of sounded like Inosuke, but I, I actually did not know it was actually Inosuke, so that is pretty awesome. But yeah, I can't wait to see Bryce Pavmok as him more going forward. Can't wait to see this bromance between he and Fushi. I'm not looking forward to inevitably crying in three episodes. I'm going to be an absolute wreck. Tear Eternity is great. Uh the 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 voice of the divine being is absolutely amazing and yeah i just love everything about to your eternity yeah that's uh cory yi doing the voice of the beholder 
He is awesome. Yeah. Um, he hasn't done a whole lot of other anime roles. I know that he was in Record of Ragnarok for Netflix, but this is like his first like major anime role, which is really cool to see. He was the voice of Hermes in Record of Ragnarok for anyone um, curious. Gotcha. But yeah, yeah, the beholder has been fantastic. No, absolutely. And yeah, we have we have what two more episodes with this arc, and then we're gonna be moving on to the final arc of the of the show because I think that the next arc is the is the rest of the season. The rest of the show, really. Well, we're gonna get more. There's gonna be more stuff after this is only the first season of two-year journey. We're gonna get more. Interesting. Because I thought yeah. I read there was only 20 like all together. Well, there's only 20 for the first season. Um, for the my knowledge, the manga went past where the anime ended that. Gotcha, gotcha. But yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, there's a lot of arcs left after this arc because the last arc of this season is the Jananda Island arc, and there's still five more after that, and the manga is still going because um, they just started what is known as the second act of Two Year Eternity Story. Very exciting. Very exciting. I love yeah. it. So, no, we have plenty of, for them left to adapt after this season. And hopefully that means we're getting a second season. Um, to my knowledge, a second season hasn't been confirmed yet. But considering that we still haven't gotten confirmation for a third season of ReZero, I'm not holding my breath for a second season getting announced. Yeah, I just want I just want as much content from this as possible because I love it. Yeah, it's it's great. And again, it's written by the creator of a silent voice. Um, so it's only natural that we ended up loving this as much as we did. Um, because it, it's my two-year journey is amazing. It's straight up, it's probably my after Vivi, it's probably my second favorite anime of the year. I would agree. I think I slightly preferred over Vivi uh so far, but yeah, it's 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 great yeah it's awesome like it's it's definitely like i'm pretty sure i have a very clear top two no matter what anime come out um in fall or how good like i'm watching kageki shoujo right now which um we might end up covering on the podcast depending on how fast we get through um because two's hurting only has so many episodes left and unless unless there's a show in fall that we want to cover besides demon slayer since we have since most of our stuff is wrapping up we might end up covering kageki shoujo Sounds good. But but no, it's unless there like is a curveball thrown in fall, I'm pretty sure that Vivian Tudor is gonna be my top two favorite shows of the year. Definitively. With nothing with at with even with as good as some of the other stuff um is like 86 or Tokyo Avengers or Hori Mia or Kageki Shoujo, I think that they're like the definitive top two for me. I can see that. All right, well that will do it for episode 42 of Nerd Explosion. Uh, Sean, what do you have coming up on the site soon? I know that you have some sports stuff that you have coming up, considering that we're in full swing with football season on top of you going to NASCAR this coming weekend. Yeah, so basically the next six weeks, six, seven weeks is basically yeah, a bunch of sports content. But, you know, it's it's kind of like camera, I, or like I said, I have had inter- entertainment stuff planned, but obviously sports, you know, got to keep up with as much as possible. Yeah. For for example, I I am finally taking I finally have time to write the review for Bad Batch, so I'm finally getting that. I'll hopefully be finished tomorrow, since I don't have any homework due on Wednesday. Thank God. Um, so get excited for that. I know it's been over a month since the show came out. Um, we've just been too busy to put out the review. Um, Sean never had time to write it, and I have plenty of other shows I was covering 
um, besides Bad Batch. So I just didn't have time to write the review until now. Yeah, I feel bad that I didn't, but I've even been behind on some sports content. It's just because, yeah, I'm I'm the uh, assistant manager of KJAC, uh, KJAC Radio, so that has been a little more time uh, inclusive than I thought. Also, also NAU TV as well uh, with, with any football coming back as well. But, yes, I will have my weekly, uh, you know, Patriots and – Trojan Tribune Con, which I, I will need to catch up on. And with all my race cars, once, once the NASCAR season ends, the only motorsports coverage I have to worry about is F1, but that's like early in the morning. So once NASCAR coverage ends, I'll have I'll I'll have more time to do the entertainment reviews, such as Spider-Man Miles Morales, uh Phoenix Riot Attorney Trials and Tribulations, and and possibly other stuff as well so it'll probably be november when i get to some of the bigger entertainment projects i have upcoming yeah and you and usually and i probably will have even more stuff after that as i think of it yeah until then i'll be covering entertainment of course for the site and i know if you're currently a subscriber for the report again like as cam mentioned earlier it's five dollars a month for fifty dollars a year while Sean and Cam stuff for most of the, the subscription stuff that they're doing, um, they're fully paywalled. But for me, for my content, because I don't put out a whole lot of paywall um, stuff because most of the stuff I write is reviews and, and, um, and like, like timely articles. Um, most of my subscription stuff will be released publicly two weeks after they come out on the site. Currently, I just finished writing my analysis article on Violet Evergarden and Vivi Free Nice Song. Um, if you're currently subscribed to the Rich Report, you can do that right now, or you can wait two weeks and do it for free. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so to clarify on that a little bit, because it's the first time really on this podcast we've talked about the paywall thing. So basically, the NASCAR and F1 uh, recaps that me and Cameron do, I mainly focus on F1, obviously. Those are all, those are all free because we want... The, since those are hard news, we want them to be out for everybody to read like the second it comes out. Yeah, but, it's news articles. It makes sense. Yes. But for stuff like but for stuff like um my my Patriots perusal, uh Trojan Tribune. Yeah, opinion um, pieces. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Opinion pieces or just analysis articles, because basically like my Patriots breakdown is basically my is basically the sports equivalent of your analysis articles is basically doing a hardcore analysis of a game so that's that that's so that's on the paywall and obviously you you know your stuff is is whatever you want since you're one of the yeah. three admins uh it's yeah it's as well i i'm treating it kind of similar to um art most artists or writers treat patreons um or um or other like paywall based sites and stuff um if you want to view my content early, like any of my analysis or discussion articles or like my top tens or any of that, those will come out two weeks earlier than they hit public. Um, that way, if you don't have the money um, to get a subscription, you can still read my stuff. But if you have the subscription, you have benefits. So there is still incentive. Exactly. So, so, so that, that's just kind of a, that's just kind of a breakdown with that. It's, it's a whole new thing that, yeah, I, I put I put too much effort into my analysis articles for me not to want as many people to see them as possible. But at the same time, I still 
I put a lot of effort into them. It would be kind of nice to kind of reap maybe some rewards on that, <laughs> just a little bit, just the same. Right. <laughs> um, and also to be blunt, it, it, it's it's more money to buy more comics. This is true. Yeah, I give me more money to review more comics. Yeah, I can. It can. That money would go towards my Funimation subscription, <laughs> so I can watch more anime. So I can talk about more anime. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean that's the same reason why I haven't been covering nearly as many comics on the site as I just haven't over the excuse me over the last month I just haven't had the money nor the time to read as many comics so i've been really picky with what i've been reading um like i'm real like i'm reading i'm by the horns because i love by the horns please read by the horns it's so good issue five just came out last week it's amazing please read it even when it comes to like the more mainstream comics like i wanted to cover the the gotham family or the bat family webtoon because i just don't have the time to do so and because of how short they are just I haven't had like the the energy to do it, but yeah, like um, but just to give my comic book recommendation on the way because I'm not like covering a whole lot of comics. Like, if you want to, to be reading like good stuff from DC right now, read Static. It's amazing. It's really good. Um, it's a, it's a really nice relaunch of a fan favorite character that's been needing a comic revival for a while. Um, please read the Bat Family webtoon, if, even if you know nothing about like Nightwing or Batman or or um, or The Signal or Damian Wayne's Robin or Jason Todd's Red Hood, you could know absolutely nothing about any members of the Bat Family and so absolutely love the Bat Family webtoon. It is fantastic and it's free. People love free. Free is amazing. The first four episodes of that webtoon are free on webtoon's um, website and app right now. And the next three after that are, are behind the paywall, but they're only 50 cents each to read in advance before they go up for free. I highly recommend it. The writing's fantastic. The art is really good. And it's very much focused on um, the banter between the Bat family and isn't as action heavy as your traditional comic stuff. If you like um, broken family dynamics, you'll love the Bat family webtoon. It's amazing. But overall I, that's all that we've got to say um thank you all for listening to us ramble about random nerd stuff for like almost two hours i hope that you all have a great rest of your day <laughs>